So in um, researching this, this path, this Buddhist path, this path of mindfulness, there are really, maybe we could say, three kind of core scientific questions. First is, what, what is mindfulness? And that's a more complicated question than it sounds like to actually understand what it is we're saying when we say mindfulness and to understand the relationship between mindfulness and other traits and capacities. That's the first. The second is, does it work? Does it work? Is it useful, right? Um, And... uh, and then the third question is, uh, if it does work, like, how does it work? What is the mechanism of action? You know, to borrow a phrase from, from uh, medication, you know, pharmacology, like, what, 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 how does it actually um, do its positive work? How does that actually, what does that look like? And it's that third question that I'll be be speaking to. Um, one of the one of the mechanisms that I've observed. So, um, in in September, um, I was teaching a. Uh, it was a two day retreat on uh, on anger. Some of you were there actually. And uh, and so it was, you know, kind of nine to five, wall to wall, anger was the topic, <laughs> right? And um, so, you know, we sat down the first morning, and uh, um, you know, maybe seventy five or a hundred people or something, and uh, and you know, you kind of expect for the vibe when you're sitting there to be angry, you know, right? But that was like just in sitting there in kind of feeling into, you know, just what was what was going on in other people's hearts. Um, there was really no actual sense of anger. Yeah what I felt very clearly and strongly was, um, was grief. Yeah. That, that was what pervaded the kind of, the, the feeling tone of the room, so to speak. And a kind of insight arose for me and I was sort of, when it arose, it was kind of, I was almost a little embarrassed that I hadn't put two and two together before, you know. But the insight that arose was that um, much of the fruit of this practice unfolds through a process of grieving. Like, that is one of the mechanisms through which practice unfolds. And we want to look, like, what, what is it actually like to, at the experiential level, what is it actually like to change? What, what does it actually feel like to go through the upheavals of spiritual life 
in various ways, various spheres of one's life. And what I want to suggest is that um, it often feels like a process of, of grieving. How does it feel like to, to let go? Yeah, to release something? To develop compassion, to meet the suffering uh, in one's own life, in the world? How does it feel to actually develop insight? Like those hard-earned insights, understandings. So much of this actually entails grieving. And uh, we, don't, we don't say that on the flyers, you know. But uh, um, this is what it is. Yeah, it's not just that. It's not just that, and um, it's it's um, my experience has been that um, that people are often grateful when they're given permission to grieve. You know, that a lot of people um, just don't know what to do with that or don't have uh, avenues to express that. And so um, this, is, this is not about kind of forever like wallowing in anything, or, but it's, it's this actual liberating side of being willing to feel grief consciously. And there are, uh, this is, I, I think of it as almost like a, um, a kind of, yeah, almost, almost a responsibility. Because there, there are real consequences to the failure to grieve. Yeah? And this is something that actually happens both at the kind of individual level of, uh, and also at the collective level. Yeah? Like a lot of the the kind of um, yeah the the sort of greed and hatred and delusion that that is is very evident you know in our political life is i to me feels like a um sometimes directly attributable to our, our failure to actually grieve collectively, to grieve the national history, to grieve harm. And so I think of this as something that is, um, yeah, is individual, but is also collective. And, you know, I, I don't share this to be you know, to be heavy or something like that. I mean, there there is a certain weight to it. There's a gravity around, just around that word grief, yeah? Um, but to me, it's actually quite important um, in... Um, actually enlarging the heart, actually expanding love. 
And um, yeah, the the love I, I've sort of come to to see love and grief as kind of inextricably bound, you know, in some ways. And um, that actually, the more deeply we love, that in this practice really um, expands the heart in ways we can't anticipate, you know. And the more, the more deeply, the kind of more boundless the heart becomes, the more sensitized we are to suffering, to the imperfection of this world, of this human realm. And um, and that just is going to to break the heart. Yeah. And so I've found, like over the years of my own practice, my love was more provincial, you know. And there's something about grieving that starts to expand the scope of it. And you know, the love that is not informed by grief is a little naive. You know? It's like, yeah, grief does something to the love that makes, that kind of matures it in a way. Leonard Cohen says, um, uh, I greet you from the other side of sorrow and despair with a love so vast and shattered, it will reach you everywhere. Maybe you get a kind of flavor of like what, the way that grief does not, you know, just break the heart, but actually can break the heart open. And so, um, yeah, we do this not to become heavy, but actually to become wise, to make the love even um, more radical, non-discriminating, you know. Early... um, early years practicing, um, I, I remember, and, and Jack's, Jack Cornfield's writing was a major catalyst for this, but I, I just remember um, crying and not knowing what was going on. And I didn't, that was like not a normal thing for me, I, you know. But I remember just practicing, especially doing uh, kind of like the heart practices of compassion and forgiveness and loving kindness and um, and in those tears like there was a lot bound up in those tears I don't even know you, you know I at the time I didn't know it it was only in retrospect that I could kind of unpack all that was going on in that in those tears and um it was a few things. It was it was a sense of my own suffering, you know, that um, that 
that I had been kind of sleepwalking through my life in some ways. And practice came sort of like the sense of coming home in a way. Um, uh, but in doing that, there was the, there's a certain kind of grieving for, you know, for all the suffering that had come before, you know. And there was some some grieving around the the kind of ways that I had harmed others, you know, just through my own ignorance and kind of uh, aversion. And there was a grief of like the harm that had been done to me, of just feeling like, oh yeah, I I haven't I haven't made it through unscathed, you know. And um, and then also bound up in those tears were the beginning of a kind of um, a sense of the the weight of compassion and the the enormity of suffering in the world. You know? And um, we don't, yeah, we we have to find ways of uh, of transforming that and honoring it. And then, and then some, somehow what was mixed up in this was, was um, you know, with all that suffering, there was like a dawning sense of just my own simple goodness. You know? Like not the goodness because I'm this or that, but it was, it was more a sense of like the innocence of my own condition. Yeah, the innocence of being human, the innocence of just living in a world that is not under our control and wanting so deeply to be safe and to be happy. And there was something like, oh, I can touch into that, that sense of just, yeah, we just maybe call it goodness, innocence maybe. And that also was like, um, yeah, kind of broke the heart open. It really changes how we see the world and how we see ourselves and our projects and our success and failure. This is Mary Oliver in, in Blackwater Woods. Look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light, are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds. And every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything that I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. 
Joseph um, Goldstein, teacher in the Insight Meditation Society, um, was asked, you know, at one point to uh, uh, to summarize the practice in one sentence. This is after many decades of practice, and um, and it was actually my friend asking him the question, which is not a very nice question, but. Joseph, please summarize the practice in one sentence. Yeah, everything over the last forty years, you know. And um, and Joseph said um, said the the mind that's not clinging to anything. But what does it? What is entailed in actually letting go? Um, Steve Armstrong. Uh, gives the the uh, the image of um, of a clenched fist. It says, when we first actually clench the fist, yeah, it there's kind of pain in exerting that force against this kind of natural release. But um, over time, if that fist stays clenched, the pain kind of fades away and there's a certain kind of numbness to it. And we maybe even don't notice that the fist remains clenched, that we're holding on. And then somebody says, or the world takes away something and we're asked to actually unclench the fist, to let go. And we've acclimatized to the the numbness of of the clenched fist and the movement from this to this hurts sometimes it hurts more than the clench itself yeah and the movement yeah that the pain of releasing in that way of unclenching the fist of clinging has a name. Grieving. Now, in in some sense, what we're what we're letting go are our own illusions. You know, like we we have. Uh, yeah, practice is, it's just very um, humbling. And um, we sort of come to see the ways in which we come to, to see what we've believed all along, what um, these kind of illusions, some of them may be benign, but some may be quite problematic. And we just, we're just humbled in seeing like, oh, this illusion doesn't have legs to stand on. And so, um, you know, there was a kind of, for me, this kind of crumbling of the illusion that if I like just did life right, I could hold happiness still. You know, do you know that kind of fantasy? It doesn't, sound great when you say it out loud but it's like but it's that subtle sense of like all right I'm just gonna 
get it right, I'm just going to nail it, and then hold it still, you know, like, and that mind state is like deep in there, you know, and, um, yeah, and there was something about, about just like, whoa, that's, that's actually, that can't pan out, you know, um, it's just, the world is ungovernable, you know, and, um, and it turns us back towards the heart, a kind of more reliable refuge for our own well-being. And there's, there's the letting go of the illusion of, uh, of control, you know, of, of um, yeah, just overestimating what we own and control. And, um, you know, in some ways that overestimation leaves us, we, sometimes giving ourselves too much credit, but sometimes too much blame, yeah? Uh, It's almost like as a way of preserving the illusion of control, we just find someone to blame. Sometimes the best person we have is ourself. This is... Andy Olensky, what is it that human, why is it that humans tend to feel possessive and acquisitive about all aspects of their experience? The ownership of property is embedded in most legal systems, but in drawing out the implications of the Buddhist insight, one sees that it is an extension of a much more profound habit of mind. It is this very sense of ownership that's directly responsible for both individual and collective suffering. Ownership is a node around which greed and hatred coagulate and is itself the expression of a profound delusion which gives rise to all sorts of strife. Ownership is a node around which greed and hatred coagulate and is itself the expression of a profound delusion. So in that he flagged the three kind of um, wellsprings of suffering, greed, hatred, delusion. And yeah, what does it feel actually like to to begin to let go of that? Um, well, it starts to feel like um, whatever goodness we have, whatever time we have, all of that feels like a gift. Yeah. The normal mindset is like, no, this is this is mine. This is my life. This is mine to live. But actually, in starting to let go, the perspective changes, and it's more a sense of like, no, whatever is here is given. It's given. It is a gift, and I will enjoy it. But in making some of that that movement towards a deeper understanding. There's, there can be grieving. 
there's a kind of letting go of of this illusion around arriving in in an identity you know that sense of um of like that intuitive sense that we have that like okay when i grow up i'm going to land in an identity yeah i'm just going to get my shit together and then just be that thing yeah and um i don't know if you've noticed but that doesn't happen like <laughs> there's no landing point yeah there's no place where it's like the evolution of our being is done and we we kind of like try to fit ourselves into a particular identity and take refuge in that and think like oh this is done and yet we see it as another expression of change of ungovernability And that's, again, relieving, but a process of letting go, of grieving. And so we really know, like, there's always some bit of alienation in any identity that we cling to. And then when we develop love and forgiveness and compassion, when we do metaphrases, yeah, when we say like, oh, may, may I be happy, may I be safe, may I be at peace, may you be happy, safe, at peace. Or we do forgiveness practice, or we do compassion practice. Um, the, the way that actually you know, it it works in different ways, but one of the real ways that it actually works is we ring the bell with those phrases and then what is unresolved in the heart arises and we love that as best we can. We love that to death. Yeah. But that process of, of loving what arises, loving the what it obscures love, what blocks forgiveness, what impedes compassion, like in loving the obstacles, you know, that is, there's a certain quiet kind of grieving process that happens. And then, of course, there's the actual, um, the loss of any human life, you know, when we uh, when we love in a world that changes grief becomes woven into the fabric of being human and as mammals we can't help but love you know Leonard Cohen said um I cried for you this morning and I'll cry for you again but I'm not in charge of sorrow so please don't ask me when. It's very um, touching. It's like um, nobody can tell you how to grieve. You know, there are no like 
steps or techniques or like, you know, the three steps of grieving or something, you know, like it's just, that's, it's a very improvisational jazz-like process, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, when, when, um, yeah, when loss cuts deeply, there is, is a sense of, um, like, that this could not have possibly happened, you know. There's a certain sense of just disbelief and, um, and it's almost like you can feel in the heart, the heart is like playing kind of chess games of like trying to incorporate and adjust the heart to the depth of the loss. And sometimes the kind of ways in which we're trying to digest it, metabolize, sometimes they're working and sometimes they're not. And you can just feel the kind of these these wild rhythms of of hope and desolation, and um, we want to be, you know, in this realm. Uh, kindness is like it's like oxygen, you know. Yeah. To just be gentle with the vacillations of like the heart of this is okay, this is bearable, or I cannot bear this. Stephen Levine said something very, very poignant about this. He um, he said. Um, He said, grief is like driving at night in the fog. You can only see as far as your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. Mm. Yeah. Something about the grieving process where the headlights only reach so far. Yeah. You you can't see where you're going, and you can make the whole trip that way. There's something important about reminding the heart of like that sense of the bottomlessness of it. Sometimes is. Um, is only because the headlights just reach so far. But that's how we make the trip. You know, with with a lot of these kind of feeling states, with difficult feeling states, like I, I can, I don't have this mind, but I can imagine a life without... Um, uh, you know, anxiety and shame, anger. I, I, I can imagine that. But I can't imagine a life free of grief. I, I'm not even sure what that would look like, yeah? And my experience with most, like, difficult feeling states is the practice has 
both like yeah made them arise less and with less intensity made them hurt a lot less with anger or fear or these kinds of things but with grief my sense is that it actually my practice made it hurt more it's like the undefended heart is more vulnerable to the the pain of grief but what what i think the dharma does do for us yeah even though yeah we have to bear some pain um what it does do is it um is it transforms the pain of grieving from a pain that might harm our heart to a pain that merely hurts. And it may hurt deeply, but there's actually a sense of my heart is not what will actually be bigger. And that is the solace of Dharma practice in this realm. This is um, uh, uh, Catherine Schultz, and um, she's she's writing about. Um, yeah, in a sense, the kind of the yeah the gift of of grieving, the kind of um, the ways in which it actually can inform our lives, our hearts, that it can rearrange the ways what we value most deeply. And um, and she wrote this this piece, and she's kind of playing on. The, the ways that we use language of losing losing one's keys, losing one's father, yeah, and um, describing uh, you know her own grieving process with uh, the loss of of her dad. So she writes, um, "It's breathtaking the extinguishing of consciousness, yet that loss too." our own ultimate unbeing is dwarfed by the grander scheme. When we're experiencing it, loss often feels like an anomaly, a disruption in the usual order of things. In fact, though, it is the usual order of things. Entropy, mortality, extinction. The entire plan of the universe consists of losing and life amounts to a reverse savings account in which we're eventually robbed of everything. Our dreams and plans and jobs and knees and backs and memories, the childhood friend, the husband of 50 years, the father of forever, the keys to the house, the keys to the car, the keys to the kingdom, the kingdom itself, sooner or later, all of it drifts into the valley of lost things. There's precious little solace for this and zero redress. We will lose everything we love in the end. But why should that matter so much? 
By definition, we do not live in the end. We live all along the way. The smitten lovers who marvel every day at the miracle of having met each other are right. It is finding that is astonishing. You meet a stranger passing through your town and know within days you'll marry them. You lose your job at 55 and shock yourself by finding a new calling 10 years later. You have a thought and you find the words. You face a crisis and you find your courage. All of this is made more precious, not less, by its impermanence. No matter what goes missing, the wallet or the father, the lessons are the same. Disappearance reminds us to notice, transience to cherish, fragility to defend. Loss is a kind of external conscience urging us to make better use of our finite days. As Whitman knew, our brief crossing is best spent attending to all that we see, honoring what we find noble, denouncing what we cannot abide, recognizing that we are inseparably connected to all of it, including what is not yet upon us, including what is already gone. We are here to keep watch, not to keep. That phrase, we're here to keep watch, not to keep, that might well be a kind of the mantra of the Dharma too. And um, so I I say all this essentially to uh, uh, to normalize the path of practice that um, for for everyone at some point will entail a process of grieving. Yeah, at some point along the kind of wild ups and downs, upheavals and spirals and deepening of practice, we will feel like something we love is being pulled from us. And for us to have a certain kind of confidence in the logic of the path that um, this, the grief is not bottomless but actually um, comes to inform the heart uh, inform the love and lead to a a life that um, uh, is is well lived. To uh, to close the um, uh, Reverend uh, Dr. William Barber preacher so was um, w- witnessing I don't know if he was was present at uh, the funeral for 
um, George H. W. Bush, but uh, commented, he said, um, uh, as we witness the pomp and circumstance in tribute to a president now deceased, let's consider what if we had as much dignity and unity in life as we seem to have in death? Nice to, um, yeah, to be able to talk about these things with you. So, um, we have uh, some time for for uh, questions or comments. We'll uh, we'll use use a, a mic uh, so everyone can hear. There might be questions about uh, what what been said. Maybe questions about your practice or working with something arising. Hi, and thank you for a great talk tonight. Um, I didn't know what the topic was when I came here tonight, but I and um, a large group of friends in Sausalito are grieving the loss of a great man taken way too young um, to a terrible disease. And hearing this tonight, I realize that I'm having um, pretty much delayed onset grieving, and I think a lot of us are too. Mm. Um, A lot of these are kind of big, tough guys in the sailing community. And like a lot of men, we don't, we're not in good touch with our feelings often. And how do we help each other and how do we recognize the need in each other in this little community mm-hmm. to help them through that process, and particularly as family, as a two young sons and a wife left mm-hmm. behind. Mm-hmm. If there's any advice on how to help each other through this process, yeah. it's quite a shock. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, I, you know, <clears throat> am, um, yeah, quite quite cautious about uh, about giving kind of concrete advice or something like that. Um, uh, yeah, it's almost like sometimes almost any advice that one gives can feel alienating. You know that? Like any advice that one gets, you know, in, and I can scarcely imagine the depth of the loss, you know, with the family. Um, uh, 
uh, yeah, and so um, I I don't I don't know anything other than being kind of like really attuned to you know not to kind of trespass on the hearts of others and you know you like there's a, a way in which when there's something like that if somebody shares that and we're talking one on one or something i just get like really quiet and and still and actually absorb the gravity of what's being shared and then when I might say something to a person in that that, that grief, there's a sense of um, of just like exquisite tenderness around their heart, you know, and um, and just staying kind of attuned to that. And people are going to grieve in many different ways and you know but actually to kind of broadcast in a certain way that um, your own willingness to feel your own heart and to be present for for others and um, yeah a certain kind of it's a certain kind of courage you know like a certain kind of faith that this work has been done and can be done and then and then really allowing for the kind of diversity of expressions of where people are and what people need and um, yeah but uh, you know in all honesty you asking that question the way you asked it it's beautiful beautiful you just follow that thread wherever that question came from you just okay what's needed now yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Beautiful talk. Thank you so much. Sure. <clears throat> A few things I wanted to comment on because they were so beautiful. You started talking about anger and as a psychotherapist, I find that too, is there's so often sadness, fear, and a whole lot of other things behind people's, or underneath, whatever metaphor you want to use, people's anger. Um, I love the mantra, uh, we're not here to, we're here to keep watch, not to keep. Yeah. I love that. And this reminds me, this talk about one of the more profound and helpful uh, pieces of wisdom I got really early in my trainings back in the early 90s. One of my therapy supervisors said, you know, there's an idea, and I don't know where it comes from, but that all counseling is grief counseling, mm-hmm. in a sense. And Ed really found that to be true. So mm-hmm. thank you so much, really. Sure, sure. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Yeah. Please. Um, I just wanted to add that... Yeah. Um, my sense of grief is another face of love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and at the same time, or perhaps because, um, some of the most intimate experiences I've ever had yeah. have had have been sitting with myself and others in unabashed grief. 
And I think you really spoke to that when you talked about the respect of the heart um, and to tread so carefully because it, at its deepest, it is so intimate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think to move forth with an open heart and respect for that, you can't go, well, of course you could, but not likely to go wrong in reaching out. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, uh, the kind of, that word, the intimacy of it. And um, there's something about actually the reflections on, you know, on mortality and on the, the finite nature of our life that we, um, that we've either have grieved or will grieve. That's just part of the the deal and to actually really know that it starts to make everything more intimate yeah not just grief to know like yeah to know just in looking into the eyes of another person like this person is like a vulnerable creature like me that as a kind of a starting point for our for our ethical life for what we owe to other human beings that's a good starting point and very very intimate very intimate yeah please maybe one one more once again once again matthew you nailed it. It wasn't too depressing. It was just absolutely perfect all the way through. And I just know that my gateway was through uh, exquisite grief. Hmm. Into the practice. That, 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 and that, exquisite is yeah. really the important yeah. word. Yeah. yeah. I'm very grateful. So, if you would, when you say exquisite, say a little more. What do you? Well, I, I, it, I had a very bad automobile accident, hmm. in which my husband was killed, and my legs were crushed, hmm. and I was in the hospital for about a year hmm. after that. And uh, my son, who practices with uh, Norman Fisher. Hmm said, Mom, meditation. Mm-hmm. And so that that was, as I say, just an exquisite gateway for me. Yeah. Well, thank you. But, but you truly nail it. You and Norman have to talk to each other. <laughs> Thanks. So, so let's, uh, let's just sit for a minute together. radical permission for the heart to be wherever wherever it is right now 
We're not prescribing grief. Don't need to look for it if it's not there. Don't need to feel it as a rite of passage, but if it is there, whatever way is it's there, honor it deeply. grief because there is love. May we have confidence in our own hearts to bear with, to be softened by, to be kneaded by, like dough kneaded by the grief of letting go. And may that love, uh, that is its byproduct, may that ripen and ripen be a blessing for this world. you. Thanks for your, your practice, your attention. Uh, yeah, take, uh, take good care. Nice to be with you. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.